our scripture reading. It's in your email bulletin as well. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away from in anger. O you have, O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. It's good to, to be with you, and I'm thankful to study the scriptures with you this morning once again. Um, those of you new, thanks for coming, uh, taking the risk, whether it's online or in person. And those of you here again, it's good to be with the family again. So we're thankful for the opportunity to worship. Uh, we've been in a season of Lent. That's sort of a the kind of church globally and historically celebrates the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday with a season called Lent. And in Lent, we've been looking to the words of David and the Psalms to examine our own hearts. And we're doing this examination through the lenses of prayer and looking at our emotions. And we're asking a couple questions. We're asking, how do the Psalms give words for our emotions? How do they help us to speak our emotions instead of just do our emotions? And then also we're asking, how do the Psalms teach us how to pray? How do they speak, how do they teach us how to speak God to God where we are and where we want to be? So far, I've dis- uh, we've discussed multiple different kinds of emotion. We've looked at anger and shame and grief and gratitude. This morning, we're gonna look to Psalm 27 and we're gonna investigate together the process, how to process and how to pray through fear and anxiety. These anxiety or fear is like a common 
but also really difficult emotion. And so um, we're going to need some prayer. And so I'd invite us to pray together uh, and connect our fearful moments uh, to God in prayer. Uh, So would you pray with me and for our time together in God's words to us? Father, thank you uh, for these words. Uh, They've been a personal encouragement to me, and they've been encouragement to so many. Uh, It's a beautiful psalm. That's a psalm that talks about so much about what life feels like and what we wish we felt more like in life. And I pray that um, you'd help us to want to want this. (laughs) Uh, Not just to want this, but to want to want it. (laughs) And I pray that you would be at a heart level with us where we are. Jesus, would you pursue us with your words? Would you become the word incarnate so that you might come and dwell amongst us? And would you do that richly this morning? Would you by your spirit fill us with wonder, with the knowledge of who you are, with the knowledge of how this world works, and with the knowledge of how we're in the cup of your hand? And Jesus, would you be high and lifted up more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So in Lewis Carroll's book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the child Alice leaves a tea party with the Mad Hatter and the March Hare. And she's a bit in a huff. She's angry. And so she kind of stomps her way to the next scene and stomps into the Queen of Hearts Rose Garden. And suddenly, the Queen of Hearts herself appears in this rose garden with all the royal procession. And after some threats of off with their heads over and over and over again, the Queen directs everyone to play this very strange lawn game. I don't know if you remember this scene. Maybe you've seen the movie or you've read the book recently to a little child. Here's how Lewis Carroll describes it. I think it's really interesting. Alice thought she had never seen such a curious croquet ground in her life. It was all ridges and furrows. The balls were live hedgehogs, the mallets live flamingos, and the playing cards soldiers had to double themselves up and to stand on their hands and their feet to make arches or wickets. And so Alice tries to swing a twisting, laughing live flamingo like a mallet and hit a ball, a ball that is uncurling and rolling away all the time because it's a live hedgehog. And she's trying to push this flamingo beak into this hedgehog to make it move forward and roll under a human-sized, doubled-over playing card. And these playing cards are constantly getting up and walking around to other parts of the croquet grounds. Then in a master stroke of understatement, Lewis Carroll writes this, Alice soon came to the conclusion that it was a very difficult game indeed. That's so British, isn't it? Anyway, uh, in fact, Alice complains the Cheshire cat, right? And she kind of, Cheshire cat appears suddenly and she says, I don't think they play it all fairly and they all quarrel so dreadfully. One can hear oneself speak and they don't seem to have any rules in particular. At least if there are, nobody attends to them. And you've no idea how confusing it is that all these things being alive. Okay, so this is the image. This image of trying to play croquet with live flamingos as mallets and rolling and unrolling hedgehogs as balls and moving playing cards as wickets and the feeling that everyone else is playing out to get me aggressively, unfairly, and without rules. This has always been 
a powerful image for me of how and why I feel anxious. I grew up in a home where the rules were always changing. Felt a lot like this croquet game. And the enforcement of those rules, the consequences and the rewards, were not just a moving target, not just chaotic, but unfairly enforced. And this is how the world can feel too, especially during a prolonged pandemic. Even before COVID-19, the Stanford neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky put our anxious societal situation with a really compelling image. He said, imagine you're in a cage and when the light comes on, you receive a shock. But you discover you can avoid the shocking pain by pressing a lever 10 times. And so you do that quickly every time the light comes on and so you don't get shocked. Now imagine the rules change on you and the light turns on, you press lever 10 times, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten but you still get a shock. And so what do you do? You get anxious. You get anxious and you press the lever 25 times, right? Or you do it 10 times harder, right? Or you do it while you're reciting the national anthem or you do it with your lucky socks on. And all of a sudden what worked for you no longer works. Even if it starts to work again, you don't know why it worked. And when you really needed it that one time, it didn't work. And you're asking yourself, will it work again? And so anxiety quickly can spiral into depression, a hopeless and helpless, stuck, numb feeling. And very different, that's a very different kind of feeling than the sharp sadness that actually moves us forward and helps us process uh, difficult situations and keep perspective. You see, many of us think of fear and anxiety only in terms of living in a dangerous world, which is a huge part of anxiety and fear. But while fear has to do with big external threats like terrorism or very personal phobias like spiders or heights or really narrow confined places, I think fear also has to do with my demand for success. I press the lever, I work overtime, I take the high road, I win over somebody to my side of things. And when I press that lever, I expect something in return. Good feedback or approval, or at the very least, no pain. And this demand for successful outcomes, this quest for the best, this lever pushing can run our lives. And people have told you you're a good student, right? They told you you're a great employee. They told you you're a superior athlete, a talented musician, a likable or respected person, a good Christian. And let's be honest, it seems like some people even envy your home and children or your terrific work-life balance. But for many of us, these praises have twisted into fear and anxiety. What if what I do isn't good enough? What if I'm actually not that smart or talented or likable. What if I'm not up to Pinterest's interest? What if I can't really make a real global difference? Suddenly there can be a pressure to perform, a sense of mounting inadequacy. Perhaps if you are continuing to get the praise or especially if what you're doing doesn't work. 
That is, my performance or what people think of me is not really up to me only and never and maybe even mostly. Why is that? Because what matters most to us is oftentimes least in our control. (laughs) What matters most to us is often least in our control. Psalm 27 steps into this very real, very raw place with us. The psalmist David exposes his fears. He prays his panic out loud. But notice how David, still feeling very anxious, directs us towards a very different place. And I would say a very different and jarring sense of purpose. The beauty and the goodness of the Lord God. In a sentence, Psalm 27 tells us the antidote to anxiety. The antidote to anxiety is Jesus' beauty. Adoring God's goodness answers fear's fundamental question. Will God protect me? Will God protect me? Psalm 27 does not offer us a single mystical moment Instead, it carefully lays out a level path towards less fear and more adoration. And this this path first directs us in how to listen to our inner fears, verses one through three. Second, this path directs us how to engage God in our fears, verses four through 12. And third, Psalm 27 directs us in how to open ourselves up again in an unsafe world, verses 13 through 14. These points and verses are in your sermon outline that might be projected behind me and is also in your bulletin. So let's begin with verses one through three and how to listen to our inner fears. Look at how open the psalmist is, how David is so open to discussing his fears in verses one through three, right? In verse one, he asks, whom shall I fear? Not once, but two separate times. And in verses two through three, he rattles off all of his fear factors, those things that he's afraid of and anxious about, evildoers, adversaries, foes, even an army. And later verses in verse, later verses like verse 12, show us just how fearful those forces still are at work in his life. But some of us are not so open. We are not so willing to go there with our fears. We just don't want to talk about, we don't want to pray through, we don't even want to think more about our darker, more negative emotions. Some of you are like, get through this sermon series, Sid, I'm done. But Psalm 27 is showing us biblical wisdom, the need to acknowledge and even allow space for negative emotions like fear and anxiety. It's like that character joy in the movie Inside Out. We actually need to realize that maturity requires us to feel things that are not initially pleasant. We need to feel sadness. We need to feel our fears. And even sustained fear, that is anxiety, anxiety is sustained fear, that has a purpose. According to Christian counselor, David Pallison, anxiety is a God-given capacity for knowing something bad is going on in your world. Anxiety is a God-given capacity for knowing something bad is going on in your world. That is fear tells us something is not the way it should be. Someone or something is moving against us and that he, she, or it may well intend to harm us. And that's what anxiety is telling us and fear is telling us. 
And let me here give a couple of the biochemical and environmental caveats, right? Not all people process fear the same, right? Not all people have the same biological playing field. And also, we don't all have the same family dynamics we grew up in or currently exist in. But typically, emotions like anxiety function like a check engine light in your car's dashboard. You're living life, right? Spreadsheets, email, diapers, Saturday soccer games, Netflix, repeat. Okay, that's what you're doing. And all of a sudden, an angry red light appears, fear, out of the corner of your eye, in the corner of your heart. And we have this choice in that moment to keep driving, to keep doing life, or when you can, to pull over to the side of the road and lift the hood of our hearts to see what's the matter. Oftentimes, many of us ignore the check engine light uh, of fear and keep driving well after the first moments of fear appeared, hoping that that fear is just going to go away. Whether that desire to keep driving is sort of this bingy escape or always holding out for the next beach vacation or an addiction or just working harder or just doing more and hoping the problems go away. But while a few, while there can be like this malfunctions that cause check engine lights, most of the time, fear is signaling something to us about something serious. It could be we need an oil change, like a change in a relationship. Or it could be that we've got a cracked engine block at a heart level. We don't know that until we choose to self-examine, until we choose to lift up the hood of our hearts and look for ourselves and also invite a look from a trusted friend or pastor or counselor. So how do we lift up the hood of our hearts and look at what fear tells us about what's going on inside of us? Verses two through three, they suggest that we, how it's often helpful just to list out our fears, to catalog on paper and or in prayer to God, all the things that are just stressing me out. Okay, the first, li- the first thing that's super helpful about that is there is a finite number of things that are stressing me out. There are only so many things, once you put them on paper, that are actually fearful or stressful at that moment. And that's a huge win because it doesn't feel like that. The second thing is that this process helps slow us down and makes us still. And it counteracts the same denial and busy avoidance that leads us to keep on driving possibly doing more damage to ourselves and to others. But these opening verses also show us the value of asking good questions, of questioning our fears. And here's just a really practical way to do that. What are some ways that we can kind of ask questions of the the fears that we just listed out? Look at David. He's repeatedly asking his heart, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse one encourages me to ask myself, Sid, why are you so afraid? What is the fear saying to you? What is at stake? What is being threatened? And that last question is especially important for us to ask. What is it that you are afraid of losing? What is it that you're afraid you won't get? To quote David Pallison again, worry Worry is trying to hold on to what you might lose. Or worry is grabbing for what you don't have. 
So question the true source of fear actually leads us to verses four through 12. Although at first glance, it does not look like, it looks like a giant jump from verse three to verse four when you first read verse, Psalm 27. You see the psalmist has, shift, it has shifted. He's shifted in his prayed out thoughts from listening to his inner fears in verses one through three to the one thing that he has asked of the Lord in verses four and following. David does this because he realizes his fears are actually about what he's asking for. He is anxious about what he wants more than anything else, but fears he's going to lose or fears he's never going to get. And so you see, David knows that our fears show us where our treasure is. Often the things that we desire more than God cause the most anxiety. Often the things that we desire more than God, that is our treasure, cause the most anxiety for us. So what are you most stressed out about right now? A friendship, a work project, a spouse, a child, a parent's expectations, or is it just balancing it all or not letting someone down? These can all be good things, but at a heart level, we know that these are good things we can't control. We can lose them. We may never actually get them. But the Psalmist David wants us to treasure something that is absolutely free. To treasure someone who can never be lost. David desires to desire the beauty of the Lord the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in his temple. Verse four. I know it can sound like David's ready to give up his kingship, you know, take up a bunk bed in the, the temple complex and become a priest full time. <laughs> but, Instead, David is asking for a sustained, profound, constant contact with the very presence of the Lord. He wants to gaze at, that is, he wants to stare at. He wants to soak in God's glorious person, his personal characteristics, the Lord's matchless deeds of love and mercy and justice. After all, the Bible and Christianity are all about a personal relationship, right? With an absolute person, God. In the words of Tim Keller, the psalmist is saying this, I've had inter intermittent times of fellowship with God, but now I want to constantly enjoy his presence. And the contemplation of God itself, itself, that contemplation dissolves his fears. His mind, in a sense, is taken off of himself. You see, David realizes that his heart will only let go of something that's less than secure, his heart will only let go of something that's less than free, less than God, by adoring God for himself and adoring God in himself. So why does adoring God allow us to let go of lesser delights and fears attached to them? And to explain this, I'm gonna have to take you back to Southern New Mexico. Near the border with Mexico, on a road lined with pecan tree orchards and a small town called La Mesa. 
there is a Mexican restaurant called Chopes. Chopes is a restaurant that literally expanded from an old woman's house. <laughs> she started cooking for the family, then friends, then the town, and eventually the whole border region. <laughs> if you get lost on the way to the bathroom, you can wander into the owner's original bedroom. And it's a, and, or you can wander into a still fully functional family room, sometimes with the owner's family still in it. <laughs> Anyway, the chili reno there at Chopes is quite possibly the best Mexican food item I've ever had in my life. It's spicy, tangy, gooey, but firm, flavorful, and fried, and amazing. <laughs> Yet with Chopes reasonably priced goodness just miles away, I was astonished to learn that my students at New Mexico State University continued to eat out at Taco Bell. Honestly, I was surprised that Taco Bell existed in this part of the world with such cheap, delicious Mexican food. Sure, I get it. Taco Bell was closer and faster, but the meat is cold and it's mostly made of silicone. <laughs> it can't compare with Chopes Chile Reno, smothered in green or red chili. Meditating on Chopes, picturing in my mind's eye yearning for its food, its comfy ambiance of the house turned into a restaurant, the beauty of the flowering pecan orchards all around it. This made me never want to eat a cold burrito at Taco Bell ever again. <laughs> when I think about Chopes, I think I still never want to visit Taco Bell's greasy asphalt driveway or hard molded plastic booths. In fact, I would say meditating on Chopes would make anyone leave the drive-through line immediately and go to the restaurant they wanted to go to in the first place. A move the Bible simply calls repentance. Do you see the point of my snobby Mexican food story? <laughs> David is treasuring the very best. What's unchangeable, what's, unsecu what's secure, what's freely offered, the very presence of God. Yes, like Chopes, the Lord's beauty sometimes does not feel close at hand and it can feel more costly. But like Taco Bell, any other delight, education, friendship, promotions, romance, marriage, well-behaved children, fitness, glory, these all pale in comparison. These good things are like a cold, mostly silicone burrito. <laughs> when held up to the light and to the life. So with David, we too get to ask, to want to want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so if verses four through six are about why we attempt to adore God in our hearts and minds, verses seven through 12 are about calling out to God when he feels distant and too costly. Verses seven through 12 are so honest about what life sometimes feels like, what faith sometimes feels like. Sometimes we doubt that God is with us, whether he's able or willing to listen to our prayers, to listen to us when we're anxious. In verse seven, Psalm, the psalmist prays, hear, O Lord, when I cry out, answer me. Verses eight through 12, the psalmist says, he holds God to his promises. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And David in his growing fears begs the Lord, don't you hide your face from me. 
Don't you turn your face away from me in anger. Don't forsake me. Don't give up. Don't give me up to your enemies. And we've all been there, right? Recently, likely. We've got it. I'm in too deep. I can't control the world out there. I can't even control the world in here. Worry isn't getting anything under control right now. Self-effort can't do the trick and calm me down. And so the psalmist prays and encourages us to pray because prayer is at the heart an acknowledgement. Prayer simply says, I'm in trouble and I need an outside rescue effort. <laughs> Something outside of me to save me. And we pray because in the midst of our panic-laden fears and our panic-laden prayers, there is this glimmer of hope. Verse 10 reads, for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord, the Lord will take me in. And what for David was a long jump of faith. For us is a baby step. You see, 2,000 years ago, false witnesses rose against the son of David, Jesus, and they breathed out violence against him. They sentenced him to death on a cross as a criminal. Worse, on this cross, Jesus' father, God, hid his face from his son. God the Father turned away, and in anger, he cast Jesus off. God indeed gave his son Jesus up to the will of his adversaries, forcing Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this very act of exclusion ensures our inclusion. The cross's separation ensures our eternal reconciliation to God. Because of Jesus, those who speak, those who seek God's face will find his smile. Because of Jesus, those who gaze upon the, God, the Lord's beauty will be made beautiful. Because of Jesus, those who believe in him shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The cross of Christ stuns our worries into silence because it promises God's love is free and it's forever. Anxiety is bathed in the cross's blood oath because it promises that God indeed controls the universe. And this very God is near. He's near to us. He listens to our prayers. He protects our circumstances. We look to the cross and we are reminded once again, yes, of course, the maker of the universe is my daddy. He cares about me. Let me be clear, this tender trust that someone who loves us is at the controls of life and its circumstances, this tender trust does not guarantee no more fears. It's not a secret amulet to the end of anxiety in this life. I mean, just look at King David's own life in the books of First and Second Samuel. But it does help us to more quickly listen to our inner fears to more often engage God in our fears, even praying these verses back to him. And this trust leans us into our third and final point. God's fatherly control helps us to open ourselves up again in an unsafe world. And we see this in verses 13 and 14. I'm just gonna look at verse 14. Verse 14 ends the Psalm on this really beautiful self-exhortation. David is in the locker room 
<laughs> and he is delivering, take this with you moment. He's taking it home to halftime speech mode to himself and to us. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In the original Hebrew, it's actually even a much more positive message. The translation of wait is actually could be better translated hope. And so in verse 14, we're encouraged to do the same things we do daily, but to do them differently. Instead of fearing or trying not to care, it looks like hoping for the Lord, for his alternative to the present, for his way in the midst of us. Did you know that the book, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland does not actually end with Alice? Uh, Lewis Carroll shifts his focus to Alice's sister's perspective. Alice awakens from her dream and tells her unnamed sister all about Wonderland, but Alice then immediately gets up and runs off and goes inside to take her tea. <laughs> Again, very British. And Lewis Carroll's attention shifts to this unnamed sister and describes her as she sits still, just as her sister left her, leaning her head on her hand, watching the setting sun and dreaming after a fashion until as she's listening or seemed to listen, the whole place around her became alive with strange creatures of her little sister's dream. The white rabbit, the frightened mouse, the March hare and his friend sharing a never ending meal, the shrill voice of the queen ordering her unfortunate guests to execution. Lewis Carroll tells us, so Alice's sister sat with, on with closed eyes and half believed herself in Wonderland. Though she knew she had but to open them again and all would change to dull reality. When our fears surge us awake at 3 a.m. in the morning, when our low level stress dulls our enjoyment of a beautiful Sunday afternoon in the sun, Psalm 27's version of the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, this vision can feel as unreal as Alice's Wonderland. But it's there and then that we wait for the Lord. We hope in his secure and freely offered alternative, God's unchangeable beauty, a goodness beyond, a goodness within painful shocks and anxious levers. A wonderful vision that even Alice's sister has to acknowledge changes the heart of the one who chooses to adore it. The vision of a God in the scene, on the scene, enables us to feel other simple sorrows, to find pleasure in all the simple joys, remembering our own childlike hopes in the happy summer days. The happy summer days that can and will come for good. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for these words to us. Brings up a lot, and that's okay. As you stir our hearts, would you also settle them? But Lord, we pray that you wouldn't settle them the same way. We pray that you'd sculpt them. Would you sculpt them leaning? Would you sculpt them off balance, depending on you. 
We ask this, Lord, for your kindness, your fatherly care. We trust in your beauty to change us and to change this world. Help our unbelief. But Lord, oh, help give us that vision. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.